So, Dan, I've got a history fact for you. Go on, then. Hit me up. You know Winston Churchill, that famous prime minister that we had one time? No, who's he? <laughs> well, he got a waxwork made out of wax, obviously, in Madame Two Swords. Can you guess what year it was first displayed? I'm going to go with 1945. See, that's what I guess, yeah. because it was like when he was proper famous. But no, 1908. Was when really? Winston Churchill was first wow. displayed in Manitoba, who hadn't even been prime minister at that point. Wow! So I guess him hammering down on miners and like anarchists got him very famous. People liked it in those days. Weird. It was probably more to do with his escape during the Boer War. Okay, he then. became pretty famous after that. Oh, That's yeah. my little history fact of the week. Factoid. Interesting. <laughs> I like it. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. I'm sweltering. Why Why are flats so badly designed in this country to deal with heat? Well, you see, uh, we live in a converted Victorian house. Yeah. And we live in the basement. So it's like an icebox in here. Oh, which is really nice in the summer. But in the winter, it's absolutely horrific. Yeah, I bet. Because we have no heating. So right now, I'm like, yeah, I've got a cool house. And everybody else is complaining. But in the winter, I'm going to be like, I hate you. You are warm and toasty, and I am. Um, yeah, reads my butt. <laughs> I was about to say, I was about to say, oh man, like the uh, the servants had it well, but like back then, winters were like horrendously cold, and winters yeah. were temperamental and rubbish. So yeah, they had it badly. That's why the, the flats are so badly designed now. They're still like based off that idea that we don't have hot summers, but. Mm. <laughs> that's changing now we've destroyed the planet now we're all gonna burn 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 uh, so I'm going to Latitude tomorrow it's just gonna be really fun you guys can hear yeah, about lucky. that next week yeah I haven't been um, to a festival in two years cross fingers nobody gets COVID one person gets COVID and it's all over um, should be up. nice are you talking about a person today or an event? I am a, a person. I am. You're a person. I am. A, I'm a person, and I'm talking. <laughs> you about are a person. Should we do Okay then. Should get so I am doing yeah another gangster because that's my fallback. Because you are gangster. Yeah, that's my fallback. If I can't think of someone today, <laughs> I'll just do a gangster. So I'm doing Stephanie St Clair. If you've ever heard, I've of never her. heard of her. Okay, no. she's interesting. Okay, a female gangster yeah. and do you avenue as well. I don't think we've done a female yet. We haven't, no. She's a rare um, specimen. Right, so Sinclair was born uh, on the French Caribbean island of Guadeloupe uh, in 1897. There you go. Um, <laughs> so that's all about all we know about her early life. The rest is kind of like lost to both time and her tendency to just lie, lie shamelessly about her story. <laughs> um, so some histories say that her mother got ill when she was 15, which forced her to leave school, ending her formal education. But she was able to save enough money to make her way to Quebec in 1911. The problem with this story is the dates don't match. Because if she was born in 1897, she'd have been 14. She was 14. <laughs> yeah, when she arrived. A year younger than when her mother got sick, apparently, so it just doesn't really tally. Yeah, um, sounds like BS to me. But it's just likely Stephanie. that she just she just lied about her age. 
to yeah maybe to uh, make herself younger exactly. yeah by a decade fair play to her <laughs> um so on uh, the 22nd of July 1911 at the age of either 13 or 23 uh <laughs> Sinclair out for Terrebonne uh, Quebec just outside of Montreal history doesn't say what she did uh, while she was in Canada but it's likely she was employed as a domestic worker as part of the Caribbean domestic scheme that ran from 1910 to 1911 um, so in 1912 she boarded a ship bound for New York City uh, she used the long voyage and subsequent quarantine because everyone's got quarantined when they arrived in America no, it sounds like that's something that they, need to they be, should yeah, have actually done now. <laughs> you know, recently. <laughs> but never mind. Uh, so she used this time to learn English. So she then moved to Harlem. There she fell in love with a small-time crook known as Duke. Who soon tried to prostitute her out? Because that's what you do with your girlfriend, right? Obviously. That's what I do with my girlfriend. Obviously, men are trash. <laughs> is, uh... You are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, Duke was shot, shot in, a, in a gang fight. So there ended the... Oh, and attempts. killed? Yeah, yeah, and killed. Okay. <laughs> Which ended the attempts to prostitute her out. So that's kind of good. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. Move on with the life sentence. <laughs> so next, uh, some say she started her own business. Uh, and by business, what I mean is selling controlled drugs... Uh, with the help of her new boyfriend, Ed. So, like a drug dealer. I don't know why he referred to that as her own business. I mean, I guess being a drug dealer is a business, in a way. Um, it's just a different kind of business. An illegal yeah, business. It's, it's, I, it, <laughs> I mean, just, you're kind of an entrepreneur, yeah. I guess. <laughs> uh, and she proved very good at it. And after a few months, she had made about thirty grand, $30,000, which is good money in those times. Yeah, um, good money now. And so at this point, now she kind of like made something of herself, got a little bit of a stash. Uh, she told Ed that she wanted to leave him and strike out on her own. Now, he wasn't having any of this and decided, instead of letting go, he'd just strangle her. Because again, men are trash. Luckily, Al St. Clair was no slouch and she managed to get the upper hand and bashed his brains out against the table, killing him. Oh, wow. She must have been strong. Yeah, ma'am. I mean, I guess when you're, like, in a corner, with that adrenaline <laughs> pumping. Yeah, I suppose. To survive. I've always hoped that for myself. Like, if I ever get attacked, then my adrenaline will take over, because I'm actually a massive wimp. Just see red. That's the, so uh, that's the key. So, maybe, like, yeah, that will happen. Uh, Nobody attack me, please, <laughs> to test that theory. So, this show of force seems to impress the gang. Because after this, she became a leader of a local gang known as the 40 Thieves. Uh, so there's 40 of them I think so no, I bet there wasn't <laughs> Around. I bet there was kind of like yeah just like Prox. near enough they were like mm, it's about thought 40 isn't it so these guys uh, so the gang ran extortion and theft rackets um, so for months afterwards she employed her own men bribed cops on, on the 12th of April 1917 invested $10,000 of her own money in a clandestine lottery game in Harlem uh, also known as a numbers racket. So now this is a little complicated and I'm not actually totally sure I understand how it works. But let's I, I'm going to pretend and uh, okay <laughs> and explain it like how 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 it was written. Um so let's pretend this is a montage from like the big short or Molly's game was game or something like that. 
So more commonly referred to at the time as policy banking, it was a mix of investing, gambling, and playing the lottery. So this was a time when black Americans were often denied bank loans and remained skeptical of white-controlled banks uh, in general. Uh, So the illegal numbers game, or policy as it was known, was akin to putting money in the stock market. Uh, Many saw it as an investment, although really it was just gambling. It was just yeah, of like course. Playing. Stock market is like just playing. gambling. But even more so, this is just like lottery, like numbers. So Harlem had like multiple iterations of the game, um, but the most common uh, and the one that was most commonly used by Sinclair uh, was a lottery that used daily numbers pulled from the New York Clearinghouse. So participants would play small bets. Uh, for context, a nickel was considered a big bet. So uh, proper small. On a, so it's like buying a lottery ticket on a yeah. number between 1 and 999. So like not that many numbers to pick from. No. Uh, so, but then again, yeah, but yeah. You can pick Still one. like yeah. a thousand nearly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so organizers then generated the winning numbers based on two figures, the total daily clearances among member banks and the Federal Reserve Bank credit balance. So for an example, how the game works, say say a bank's clearings were 589 million and the balance was 116 million, the willing number would be 896. So taken from... So you add those two numbers together? Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. So they take like the 89 from the first lot and the six uh, to create the number. So anyone who was lucky enough to bet on 896 would receive that day's payout. That's so weird. Yeah. Like, that makes no sense. I know, it's just so weird, yeah. <laughs> it's just completely yeah. like, it's just like playing the lottery, basically. But playing like, I don't know what you'd put in any more than you'd have to. Like, surely you just put in the smallest amount, like, possible. Because you're not going to get any more, I don't think, if it's like the lottery... I don't well, know. It's everybody, if everybody puts in more, then you then, get yeah, more. then it makes yeah, then it makes the jackpot. It's like the uh, the prisoner's dilemma. Like if everybody put in a nickel, you'd get more. But if everybody put in a penny, you'd get less. Yeah. So but, if you put in, anyway, let's not get into the prisoner's <laughs> dilemma. <laughs> well, I get um, what you mean. So they've kind of like come up with like a set um, payout, basically. I think based on like what people put in, and then suddenly you collect the rest of the money. And keep that herself. The next right, day, okay. the game was restart with new bets and a new winning number. So it would run every single day. So okay. it's kind of like good money. So with the end of Prohibition and the Great Depression setting in, Italian-American and Jewish crime families saw a decrease in profits. And the numbers racket was so lucrative that it started a gang war when the white mobsters tried moving in on the kings and queen of Harlem to steal their numbers networks. Um, and no fight was fiercer than St. Clair's and Dutch Schultz. I'm not sure if he's... I think he might have come up in... In the in one of my previous ones, Dutch Schultz. is like a sounds, bit part player. Yeah, I sounds... Uh, sounds legit. Though, I mean, there are a lot of weird names yeah. that come up in there. So, Schultz moved in on uh, St. Clair's territory. Uh, she... Did miss her words in a declaration of war, saying, I'm not afraid of Dutch Schultz or any living man. He'll never touch me. I will kill Schultz if he sets foot in Harlem. He's a rat. The policy game's mine. 
Yeah, did he not be here by the time that she literally <laughs> bashed someone's head in? So Dutch Schultz was a Bronx native, notorious no. bootlegger, with more than a hundred underlings who enforced his rackets. New York State Prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey viewed him as public enemy number one. Once writing that he regarded it a matter of primary importance to get Dutch Schultz. So as the as the uh, whole bootlegging operation wound down, he moved into. Uh, and I was going to say he gave black and Latino policy operators two options: relinquish their numbers business to him, or continue to operate while paying him a percentage, a large percentage, of the profits. So with powerful politicians like Tammany Hall leader James Hines on his payroll, Schultz could assault or kill anyone who rebuffed his offer, offer with impunity. I mean, considering how like racist the cops were, like. How much? Yeah. Like, more, like even more racist the cops were. Like at this time, no one was going to like investigate these crimes anyway. I mean, let yeah. alone having like these people like on his books. Um. So while this worked with some smaller gangs, the problems with Schultz was Sinclair wasn't going to go down without a fight. So Sinclair moved swiftly against Schultz, organizing the remaining <laughs> black numbers game owners to support her fight against the Dutchman. She and her allies attacked off owners who collected bets on uh, Schultz's behalf, smashing cases, smashing shop fronts, and destroying policy bets that had been placed. Sinclair also took out ads encouraging Harlemites to only place numbers bets with black organisers. After this, Schultz quickly retaliated. He started calling Sinclair's home to threaten her. He kidnapped her and murdered her men. He even placed a contract on her life, forcing Sinclair to hide in her cellar whilst a friend of hers had to like hide her like under a a pile of coal. <laughs> uh, another time, uh, Schultz sent an underling to in- intimidate Sinclair, but she managed to gain the upper hand, pushing the man into a closet and locking him in. <laughs> then proceeded to tell her bodyguards to just take care of him. Don't want to swam to him, but hmm. remember she bashed a man's brains out before, so it probably didn't go very well for him. Uh, she also tipped off the police uh, to Schultz's operation, which led uh, them to raiding his clearinghouse, arresting 14 employees and seizing around $2 million off him. She got like a bit of revenge on his uh, his operation. Uh, she, th- she then bragged about it in the press because she basically gave no fucks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, still, despite her persistent resistance, she was losing the war. The problem was that she and her partner in crime, the enforcer Bumpy Johnson, that's a really cool name, <laughs> uh, didn't have the same police contacts that uh, Schultz had to protect her turf. Um, so the pair standoff finally ended in October 1935 when Schultz was unceremoniously gunned down while sitting on the toilet at the Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey. Nice. So that's how it ended for him. Um, so basically, like he was killed by the commission, the ruling body of several mafia heads. Um, so it wasn't actually like Sinclair that managed to like get him killed. However, wanting to get the final word, Sinclair immediately sent a deathbed telegram to her fallen enemy, signed Madam Queen of Policy. And it read, (laughs) as you sow, so shall you reap. (laughs) (laughs) So despite outliving her main rival, uh, she soon realised that the Mafia, uh, this uh, this time led by Charles Lucky Luciano, he definitely has has popped up before, uh, he basically had too much power to resist at this point. So she decided it was time for her to go legit. Kinda. 
kind of legit. <laughs> so after St. Clair Social, she passed her criminal business on to Bumpy Johnson, who took over uh, as leader, like overall leader. Eventually, her former enforcer negotiated with Lucky Luciano and um, Lucky took over Schultz's spot uh, with a percentage uh, going to Bumpy as well. So they kind of like split Schultz's rackets between them. But okay. Lucky, Lucky got maze. Um So then, like, the Mafia would then go to Bumpy first if they had any problems in Harlem. So he kind of, like, got to manage it, but not, like, rule it sort of thing. <laughs> Manager of Harlem. Yeah, in a, in a weird way that, that alliances work. Uh, so by the 1940s, Bumpy Johnson had become the reigning king of Har- in Harlem, while St. Clair had become less and less involved in the numbers game. So she kind of, like, went into... A somewhat quiet retirement, though still kind of like involved a little bit. However, her notoriety didn't stop there. In 1936, she entered into a non-legal marriage by contract to one. What? I don't know. <laughs> that is what that. marriage is. <laughs> to one Bishop Amiru Al Mu Minin Safi Abdul Hamid. So this, Wait, which ones of those are his first names, or which ones of those? I'm is not like... sure. I think Bishop is like a weird title that isn't like official. So I think it's like Amiru. But I mean, okay. like, this is a colourful character. So he's an insane, controversial, anti-Semitic race activist, popularly dubbed in newspapers at the time as the Black Hitler. Oh no! Yeah, not the greatest choice of partner, I don't think. So Hamid claimed to have been born in the shadows of the Egyptian pyramids, while in fact he was born in Eugene Brown in Lowell, um, Massachusetts. <laughs> Very far away from the Egyptian pyramids, but never mind. So he was an labour activist. According to historian Murray Friedman, he also courted the German-American Bund and the Nazi-like Christian Front. So yeah, he organised violent boycotts of Jewish-owned establishments. So not a good guy... Uh, so understatement of the podcast (laughs) so in the contract the 40 something year old St. Clair and the 30 year old Hamid agreed to a one year trial period so this I guess is the contract that they signed together if the pair decided not to continue the relationship at that point they could terminate the contract that's hilarious I wish all marriages yeah that seems good like a trial marriage sounds good trial marriage If, on the other hand, they remained certain of their feelings for each other, they could hold a legal ceremony. So that's how that works. Uh, So having this kind of way way out seems wise. I mean, like... I mean, like, considering who he is, like, Stephanie, I'm just not sure why you were with him in the first place. That is my question. Anyway. Stephanie. Unsurprisingly, the couple's union soon imploded. So on the first... Oh, so on the 19th of January, 1938, Sinclair fired three bullets at Hammond after learning that he'd had an affair with a conjure woman from Jamaica. I don't know what that means. That's just what a it was conjure woman? A conjure woman. So like... Like a ma- like a magician? I guess so. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would refer to. A conjure woman. <laughs> So the closest she came to hitting him, according to Hammond, was nicking his teeth. That's nicking still like, them. yeah. Like, so apparently, like them. the bullet like oh. hit the tooth. 
Oh, I which thought you meant nicking like, them. Like, she stole them. What she's saying is like, oh, she was a terrible shot. She like, all she managed to do was nearly shoot my teeth. It's like, yeah, that still was your head though. Like, it did hit like your tooth. Like, that's that's probably not, not a bad shot. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> it sounds like quite on target, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, so after this, she was convicted of uh, attempted murder and sentenced to two... Uh, to two, 10 years at the New York State Prison. As Sinclair was led out of the courtroom, she reported, kissed her hand to freedom. Because she's a badass. Um, <laughs> so she stayed in jail for... B- 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 I think it was four years. I, I think she's about four years in jail. Uh, so following her release from prison, her, the details of Sinclair's life become pretty hazy. So for a while, Sinclair continued her work as like an activist. She continues to write columns in the local newspaper about discrimination, police brutality, illegal search raids, and other issues facing the black community. A 1943 article in the Black New York Amsterdam News uh, says she visited relatives back in the West Indies before returning to live out her days in seclusion, likely in Harlem. Uh, more tragically, some historians have traced St. Clair's last address to the Long Island psychiatric facility, uh, where sometimes... In 1969, her life is said to have come to an end. But others say Bumpy Johnson came back to live with her uh, and write poetry, um, though he died one year earlier in 1968. So either she died like an insane sense, like, yeah, psychiatric ward, or in like a house with Bumpy Johnson, her old enforcer. I hope it was (laughs) the second one. Um... (laughs) Historian LaShawn Harris has written she uh, made a conscious effort not to be in the public eye. Though he says that she probably didn't go out as she wanted. Um, she didn't die with money. She had a kind of rags to riches story and then riches to rags once again. I mean, that was, was that, do you think, because of her incarceration? I think so, yeah. And I guess she kind of like let go of all her, like, all her businesses in the end. And uh, I guess she couldn't like, keep up the income. Uh, when she kind of like gone legitimate, I guess she didn't really have anything to. Yeah. So this is why people reoffend. Yeah, exactly. If they don't have any like skills to like. Uh, to yeah, if your skills are all in crime. Yeah. Then and also like it's hard to get legitimate work when you don't have legitimate work. If that makes sense, like yeah, you can't exactly. put on your CV like I was really good at selling drugs. Yeah. And also, you have to, like, declare all of that when you, like, go for a job. So it's just like, okay, so you've just been in jail for the last ten years. Yeah, it's not really very helpful. Oh, yeah, that's uh, Sinclair. But, yeah. Oh, that was cool. But she's kind of cool. I I came across her, like, in a a video game (laughs) about, like, the mafia. (laughs) She's, like, one of the gang leaders. And I was like, um, I think she's... It might be the only one in that game, like the only like female mob boss in that game that's like, but like an actual character from history. Nice. So yeah, so I tried to do a little bit of research, and I thought I'd recount her tale. Her tale. <laughs> oh, I hope she wrote some poetry with. Uh... Yeah, I hope that's the way that she went. Uh, have you got any recommendations for the listeners this week? No, I'm still just going through the same stuff that I was uh, reading for. I managed to get hold of a book that I've been trying to get hold of for ages because it's uh, it's one of those like 
academic text that you can only buy at like lun- at library prices, which is really yeah. annoying. Uh, about like the Solo Republic, um, so the uh, the the Rump government that that continued on under Mussolini in like from like 1943 to 1945. So I'm looking forward to reading that. <laughs> wait, wait, uh, for some rump history, guys. <laughs> uh, my recommendation this week is Deerskin. It's a movie that was actually at, I think, Sundance or Cannes in 2019. And then obviously the pandemic hit and its release was just like pushed all the way back to now. So it's okay. just come out in the cinemas. If you've seen The Artist, it's oh, the, yeah. the main guy from The Artist is the main guy in this. And the main chick from Portrait of the Lady on Fire is the main chick in it. And it's about a guy who buys a gift, uh, buys a deerskin jacket and becomes obsessed with the idea that it's the only jacket in the world. And it's a French movie. It's so funny <laughs> okay, and then. weird and just like crazy out there. It's probably one of my favorite films I've seen so far this year. If you like kind of weirdness. Okay, then I'm going to show that. <laughs> if you like weird French sounds... indie films. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's my recommendation. Nice. And also, I do recommend that you follow us wherever you're listening to this and rate us if you have time. Five stars would be really appreciated and you can follow us on social media at have you ever put on twitter and instagram and we can see you next time bye, bye.